The interrelationship between histamine and estrogen is often responsible for a raft of seemingly unrelated symptoms, from hives and headaches to anxiety and insomnia. Join naturopath Rhiannon Hardinger for Bioceuticals Clinical Mastery, Histaminosis and Estrogen, Breaking the Cycle, on the 14th of September 2022. She'll outline the key clinical steps involved in identifying, assessing and managing women affected by the complicated relationship between histamine and estrogen. Go to bioceuticals.com.au to reserve your place today. Hi, and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia where we live and work, and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respect to the elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. With us today is Dr. Sanjeev Sharma, consultant psychiatrist in private practice, where he practices in Perth, Western Australia. Dr. Sharma is an integrative psychiatrist with an interest in general adult psychiatry, where he specialises in the holistic treatment of affective disorders, psychotic disorders, addictions, and ADHD. His treatment combines both Eastern and Western medicine principles, where he believes that everyone is unique and should be treated as such. So welcome to FX Medicine, Sanjeev. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Today, uh, I wanted to talk. I mean, I wanted to talk about ADHD. So, ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is a disorder that is estimated to affect approximately one in twenty people, and more than three quarters of children diagnosed with ADHD continue to experience symptoms into adulthood. And because it's such a prevalent condition and one that triggers a lot of debate, and because of your expertise in the area, I wanted to spend today's podcast talking about your views about ADHD and how you go about diagnosing and assessing it and what effective treatment approaches you have identified. But before we get into that, can you tell us what is ADHD? Okay. Uh, Well, as we know, it is one of the disorders which has been in existence for a long time because it is a well-known condition. But what has happened is that historically it contains a lot of taboo uh, and taboo was mainly in the 90s. And which started with the movement that, like, we don't want to put people on medications and other things like that. But if you see into the breakdown into the symptomatology of these individuals, okay, it is a quality of life illness. It is not a life-threatening mm-hmm. illness, which means mm-hmm. if an individual is not treated, are they going to die? Of course not. But can their quality of life be better? Which means that on a day-to-day basis, uh, how their organizations are, their academics lost, uh, also their professional pursuits. So usually these individuals are picked up in their young age, especially if they are mm-hmm. impulsive and hyperactive. But there's a third component of this illness, which is inattentive type, which unfortunately can be misdiagnosed for several decades. And this is something I come across in my practice where they have reached into their 20s and 30s and in their professional setups, they can see that they are struggling. And they may or may not have other key symptoms, which I said earlier about impulsivity and also also hyperactivity. So it is a disorder in which these three key symptoms are there. 
And depending on the needs, we plan their treatment after the assessment is done. So do you have many patients that you newly diagnose uh, as adults who who obviously missed during childhood? Is that quite common? Yes, yes. It's a very nice point which you have made. And this is something I come across. So one of my subspeciality interest is addictions. And the place where I work, we specialize in uh, dual diagnosis, which is mental health and addictions. Now, a substantial chunk of population, maybe more than 60% of people who have been using uh, any addictive substances have associated undiagnosed ADHD. And these are the individuals who can start with sort of delinquent behavior, followed by rebellion behavior in the childhood, then conduct disorder, and then which gradually march on to antisocial personality. And then it can also have substance use. But usually, if you look at the trajectory of these individuals, you will find that if you go backwards, these individuals would have a lot of patients who would have lot of inattention problem, they cannot sit and they can be easily aggravated or excited and then mix up with the peers. So mm-hmm. there is a subgroup of patients which I come across, especially in this population where uh, underlying ADHD is a common condition. And there is also another category which we come across is when some of these individuals, especially when they are coming out of a structured environment in the school where there is a lot of regimental approaches are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when they go to university or join the workforce or they join any apprenticeship, they find that this all everything is loose and it all depends on them. And somehow they may be changing a lot of degrees or changing their professions and that's how they, when they are picked up. So there's a wide variations of adults which I come across when we see these individuals struggling and depending on their nature and certain rules and regulations around prescriptions, we pick them up and treat them. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So some, a lot of them will have comorbid conditions, like you, like you mentioned, addictions. But then yes. when they change or transition from the school environment into a workplace where maybe there's not so much structure, then that's when yes. some of these symptoms will become more apparent for them. And that's when they'll probably come and see someone like yourself. That's correct. That's correct. Wow. That's correct. Okay. So if we think about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, now, does everybody with ADHD, do they have to have hyperactivity or can you have just the attentional, inattention side of things and not have the hyperactivity? Okay. It's a very good point. And as I mentioned earlier, in order for diagnosing ADHD, hyperactivity is not required. Okay. It can be. So the way DSM-5 diagnosis is called as attention deficit hyperactive disorder slash mm-hmm. inattentive type or mixed type or uh, when mixed type is that when we see both hyperactivity and inattentiveness. So to answer your question, hyperactivity may not be there in everyone. And also particularly okay. in case of adults, what happens is that even people who have been diagnosed with ADHD when they were young, they may have a mixture of hyperactive and inattentive component. But hyperactive component tends to mellow down as they grow up and is there in their late teens to early 20s. But inattentive component can stay. So this is what it is mentioned that those three out of four people will remain have inattentive problem when they were diagnosed. So that's something significantly impact on their academic and professional pursuits. And this is where mm-hmm. these people become quite dysfunctional 
And I have seen remarkable changes once, certainly the medications, but also the integrative approaches are used in these individuals. Okay, okay. So I'll just, for our listeners, I'll just kind of go through, I've got the DSM-5 criteria here. So with the inattention, uh, some of the symptoms are that they often fail to give close attention to details or make careless mistakes, or they often have difficulty sustaining attention in task or play activities. They may um, not seem to listen when spoken to directly. They can have problems following through with instructions or fail to finish schoolwork or chores or, or tasks. They may have difficulty organising tasks and activities and they often avoid or is reluctant to engage in tasks that require sustained mental effort or they often lose things. Um, so based upon the DSM-5, it's six, I think it's six of those symptoms. Need to, obviously, they don't need to have all of those, but um, around six of those symptoms uh, need to be persistent for at least six months. And they need to kind of have a prevalence in childhood, don't they? Yeah, so what happens is that sometimes... We do standardized questionnaires, so we do a small checklist uh, of questionnaires are there. And there's a detailed one, it is called as DIVA, in which there are some questions related to their childhood. And also depends on their cultural environment. So a lot of times people, mm-hmm. if their parents have been migrants or their parents themselves have their own challenges, they may not even recognize that these children have problems, you know. But when they look back and ask these specific questions, some of them have these symptoms lifelong, but it was never brought to their attention. So, and this is where these individuals miss out a lot. Okay, If they would have been okay. picked up earlier, then chances are they could have done much better. Yeah. And what was the questionnaire you, you mentioned that you use? Yeah, it is called as a DIVA, and this is basically a diagnostic tool based on DSM-5 questionnaire. So it's basically... Mm-hmm. Each individual symptoms have been broken down into like a checklist of questions. And usually Mm -hmm. they tick them whether they had this in a mild, moderate and severe category. And then based on that, you do a calculation. But certainly in some cases, particularly in case of children, they go through some kind of a standardized diagnostic checklist. So one is the corner speech uh, rating scales, which both done by the caregivers for that, uh, like parents and also the teacher's version. And then based on that, they are checked up. So there can be formally assessed as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. But especially in case of adulthood, I primarily rely on the free flow interview in which we can listen to their struggle. And once we have gone through Mm -hmm. the individual categories, which are related to their academics, their time management, their organization, their finances, their impulsive behaviors or lifestyle challenges or sleep disturbances, you will come to know that, yes, most of the areas within the symptoms are covered. And mm-hmm. hopefully then we can proceed with the treatment options. Yeah. Okay. So most of it, so you obviously do your interview, your standard interview, you ask questions to identify symptoms. Yes. You may or may not yes. use questionnaires or, or, or checklists or things yes. like that. Yes. And that helps yes. you identify um, the yes. diagnosis. Now, is the diagnosis important? Is that something that you think is important when it comes to ADHD is, is actually coming up with that's a formal correct. diagnosis? Because otherwise what happens is that we are trying to, because that's a primary category, especially if we are using certain medications. So if you want, I can talk now, but we can talk it later. But there are certain medications which are longer-acting preparations, which are not covered by PBS if you are diagnosed after the age of 18. Okay, so, okay yeah, we'll go. So, so there are, so yes, that's where we have to be assured that we are making a diagnosis at an appropriate age. 
and especially there are some subgroup of people who come who were seen by their doctors or by pediatricians or psychologists but they were never initiated the treatment and that's okay as long as there is a diagnosis there and i've got a documentary evidence certainly then they can be eligible for pbs repaid otherwise they may have to pay like a private script for like medications longer acting preparations of methylphenidate like ritalin la and concerta whereas okay, in case yeah. of uh, dexamphetamine since last one year even the adults are eligible uh, initially they were not so Mm-hmm. so that's an advantage uh, which uh, some of the individuals have if they were diagnosed earlier when do you go okay this is adhd this is not just your normal inattention forgetfulness um a bit of hyperactive when do you kind of go yep definitely i think a diagnosis is warranted here usually the the best way to look into like i, I would say it for like general practitioners because a lot of times i come across that and yesterday i can give you an example i saw a lady and she was told by her general practitioner that well i don't think you have adhd because you have been sitting for one hour okay and okay. you didn't move okay so and that's the uh, biggest myth you know so let them flow but what these people will do is that if you allow them to flow in sit in the talk if they are hyperactive first they will be very fidgety okay they will be mm-hmm. constantly tapping their legs they will be moving their hands they will be moving their body and they sometimes want to stand up some of them do stand up and they find it very difficult to sit at one place so these are some people will be come across and they will preferably want jobs which requires movement like anywhere they are a tradesman or a warehouse mm-hmm. but if they are given a office job they hate it so that sometimes yep. we see that those things when they require a lot of attention to details and especially if it is a uh, administrative work or which requires like invoicing and data entry they just cannot do it now there are other subgroup of people in which if you allow them to speak at length you will see that they are just like a wanderer okay they will just deviate from the topic and sometimes they will ask what was the question because they themselves know that they have deviated so we call it like going on a tangent okay but it is not a tangent if it is a primary psychiatric illness then you have to rule out that it is not a part of uh, hypomania or a mania or a psychosis so we have to keep a very fine line of other comorbid psychiatric disorders because the rules regarding prescriptions of certain medications like there are restrictions if you have a primary psychiatric illness uh, like any bipolar affective disorder and schizophrenia then individual in australia are not eligible at least in the beginning for stimulants and that's where the difficulties comes in and also in cases of people who have been using substances use disorder okay so there are very strict regulations particularly in wa where we are uh, today recording this interview that each states have their own regulations about so in wa one of the requirement is that stimulant panel can audit your records and in those and other cases where there are some restrictions we have to apply like a special access and until unless it is approved by the stimulant panel we cannot alter the dose and again there are certain requirements that can you please do few times random urine for drug screen and again it's a supervised collection which means chain of custody and no adulteration is 
done and it's a clean sample. So there's a lot of restrictions. There's a lot of, obviously, the diagnosis and then the prescription of the stimulant medications. There's a whole bunch of processes that you need to stick to as a psychiatrist. That's correct. That's correct. correct. Because Mm. it's a Schedule A drug. So it's a Schedule A prescriptions, which means that very strict dispensing guidelines have to be maintained. So whenever we have done a prescription, usually the dose interval has to be mentioned and chemist has to follow Mm. that. And also, in some cases, we have to also monitor that people are not misusing the privileges. And those subgroup of individuals who are at high risk, we have to be even more cautious because not only the side effect of medications can be a risk, but also if misused, people can have relapse of psychosis. And this is something I often see in a small percentage of people in my practice where they have misused it. But once they have misused, if there is a stimulant-induced primary psychiatric illness exacerbation, like a bipolar or a schizophrenia, mm-hmm. then there is a what you call mandatory reporting of that incident to the health department. Wow. And does that happen okay. very often? Well, it does happen. Not very often, but it does yeah. happen. So usually if you have, yeah. depends on where a clinician is. If they are in the emergency department, they will see more often. But certainly it should not be ignored. So what happens is that on the Department of Health WA website. There is a form there. You just download it. You tick the boxes and say what you saw. And then what happens is that the stimulant panel contacts the prescriber to suggest that please do not prescribe this anymore because this is a uh, side effect that has been notified. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, obviously then there's regulations in place and it sounds like for good reasons, um, that that's the case. Um, now, obviously, the mainstream treatment for ADHD is your stimulant medication. Yes. Now, I'm interested in your approach, but before we kind of get into that, just in terms of the ADHD and, and what the causes behind it, I mean, what causes ADHD? Okay, good question. Well, certainly there's a genetic component. So I have seen that either of the parents uh, have an ADHD, then the chances are that prevalence can go up. But in general, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, that one in 20 are diagnosed have ADHD, like in Australia. Yep. And out of that, one in 10 are treated, So, which means there's a substantial gap in between. And so with ADHD, obviously you mentioned there's a genetic component to it. Um, yep. There's some neurotransmitters that are kind of implicated with it too, like is yes. it dopamine and noradrenaline? Is that kind of one of yes. the theories so behind that's it? Why, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where the medications work. So what happens mm-hmm. is that if you do the functional imaging scans of these individuals, like SPECT scans or PET scans, you will see that there is a low attenuation in the frontal lobes of these individuals. So, uh-huh. so, so frontal lobe is not coordinating well and as a result there is a lot of noise in the system when i say noise doesn't mean that they are hearing something it is that tend to have a subparticle structures override and as a result they become more impulsive so it's like more primitive brain is there so so that's why the impulsive Mm -hmm. behaviors are quite common in these individuals so primary aim of the treatment doesn't matter whether it is a stimulant or a non-stimulant choices are the role is to block the uptake of dopamine and norepinephrine. So when dopamine and norepinephrine are uptake is blocked, as a result of that, the neurotransmitter, which has been like a pool which is created, percolates through the front part of the brain 
And as a result of that, you see a substantial improvement in reduction in the impulsive and inattentive behavior. And you can see that there is an improvement. But Mm -hmm. when we use an integrated approach, we can talk in detail later, but what we are doing is that, and this is something I want very clear to the listeners, that any medication you use, doesn't matter, any psychotropics you are using, whether it is an SSRI or an SNRI or tricyclic antidepressants or mood stabilizers, including stimulants, they do not make neurotransmitter. They only trap the neurotransmitter. Mm -hmm. So they have no control on the production line. And this is where the integrated approach can help as well. That once we start addressing the other aspects of their well-being, then the chances are the need for the medication will be less, which means less side effects, which means better quality of life. Okay. So the medications that you're referring to, they either stop the breakdown of the neurotransmitter or they affect the receptor sensitivity to the neurotransmitter, but they don't actually help make more of the neurotransmitter. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. And that's where the integrative approach and that's where um, obviously what we'll talk a bit more about um, comes into play where that may look at how we can actually increase neurotransmitter production. That's correct. Now, if we just kind of go back to the, let's say, obviously, you mentioned that the neuro, there's some dysregulation in the frontal cortex, maybe there's some dopamine or noradrenaline issues or norepinephrine issues going on. Um, are there environmental factors or lifestyle factors that might uh, be the cause of those or, or are contributed to those um, changes in the brain? Yes, very important point. And I think this is where the traditional approach missed the boat. Okay, although we do talk about in journal about diet and well-being, but we as an integrated practitioner plays a very important role. So now just to give an example, if you look at the production line of manufacturing of dopamine, first, dopamine is a neurotransmitter, which means neurotransmitter is an outcome of an amino acid, which means it is an outcome of proteins. So if people have suboptimal levels of proteins in the diet, and then certain cofactors. So cofactors are basically B group of vitamins. It could be a pH Mm -hmm. in the system. Then we create that environment that facilitates the production of that neurotransmitter. But when it comes down to the environmental factors, so like brain is very vulnerable organ when it comes Mm -hmm. down to the oxidative stress because it has very small amount of mitochondria given to its disposal as compared to the other organs. Like, for example, if a heart and a liver and a kidney is given a few thousands of mitochondria each cell, brain has got hardly three to 500, which means mm-hmm. if there is an insult to the brain, there is a less workforce to combat. Now, when we talk about mitochondria, mitochondria has series of chain reactions which goes across before we produce ATP, which is our powerhouse or our energy. Mm-hmm. So certain environmental factors, for example, it could be in the form of heavy metal exposure. It could be in the form of PCBs. It could be in the form of environmental chemicals, or it could be in the form of infection. could be a barrier in the production line of these individual uh, neurotransmitters. So the classic example, which we commonly see in the brain health, is that those patients who have not been responding or those who have been struggling could have either low levels of proteins, which means they are not able to detoxify these toxins, uh, that's mm-hmm. what is needed, or they are quite acidic in their pH, which means that there is no environment where it will facilitate the clearance through the lymphatic channels. And the third thing is that the essential 
cofactors which are required for the production is fighting a, another battle to deal with that toxin. So yeah. just example, one molecule of mercury will keep 1,000 molecules of zinc busy. <laughs> one molecule of cadmium will keep 100 molecules of zinc busy. So zinc is also required to produce dopamine and other serotonin and GABA. But if it is busy elsewhere doing the job, then what happens is that bioavailability of that zinc for produced good is not there and it is busy somewhere. So as a result of that, we see blockages in these individuals' performances. And you will see not only the mental health challenges would be there, but also there could be wide variety of physical health problems, which probably uh, autoimmunes and GI disturbances are commonly seen in these people. So to answer your question in a nutshell, yes, environmental factors do play a very big role in these. All right. So we've got then, just to kind of recap from what you're saying, say it could be then through our diets. So we're not either not, we're not consuming enough proteins or, or essential nutrients that are important for cofactors. So that could come from there, or there could be environmental exposures that then mean our body needs to work towards detoxifying or dealing with that exposure. And then Say, for example, uh, zinc is then used to kind of fight that exposure or to deal with that exposure, but then yes. it can't be used to help make dopamine or noradrenaline. Wow. Yes. Yes. So it's not necessarily um, that somebody may be low in zinc through dietary zinc. It's, it could be that they're using it up fighting something else. That's correct. That's correct. So usually you will see that either their diet is poor, and that's where from the integrated approach, so one thing which I will tell to the listener that, First of all, if the iron level is low in the individual, until proven otherwise, its associated cousin, zinc magnesium, will be low. Yep. So okay. you don't have to check it because certain testings, like for example, magnesium. Magnesium is a type 2 nutrient. It is inside the cell. Okay. So if you are going to check for serum levels of magnesium, it is not an appropriate marker until unless you have a tissue sample which is like red blood cell magnesium or 24-hour urinary excretion of magnesium. So how you are testing that mineral is also very important. And there are wide varieties of way we can test it and also looking into associated patterns because there's a concept called as type 2 nutrients. So people can do a scholarly search of these nutrients, which includes basically zinc, potassium, sulfur amino acids, okay which are required for optimal functioning of all the neurotransmitters production. And they all work on a alkaline pH of 6.8 to 7.2. So first we need a raw material, we need a cofactor, and then we need an adequate environment to cook it. You know, But if any of the barriers are there, then chances are we will not. So some of these individuals, there's a likely possibility that would have an insult since conception. Mm-hmm. So... If the neurodevelopmental challenges have been there, then that's where the challenges come in. And it can be part of the broad range of associated ESD spectrum or autism could be also there in these individuals. So I know that um, you know, when you talk about the insults, I know there's some good body of literature with specifically with ADHD, with uh, lead. That's one thing that's yes. come across in the literature. Yes. Smoking is often increases the risk of ADHD. And then you're mentioning, obviously, um, you know, there's potentially some nutrient deficiencies. And there's also research around food intolerances and ADHT, isn't there? And that's that something that has, yeah. Yeah, has to be checked as well. Okay. And did you, what do you think is going on there? Is that just the food tolerances are causing some type of inflammatory exposure and then the body's then kind of dealing with that 
immune response and therefore not able to be used to produce the neurotransmitters? Is, is that one mechanism that you think is going on there? Yes. So like, for example, first of all, if there are any adulterants or pesticides added to the mm-hmm. production line of that food, you know, so that is one factor, which means that if there's a heavy pesticide exposure on that food, then chances are that you are consuming that. Now, food intolerances mainly happens is that if your detoxifying enzymes are also overwhelmed and they cannot, so they're working to their maximum capacity. So detoxifying enzymes are nothing but they are protein. So if you do not have robust mechanism for clearance, then the chances are that these individuals will become intolerant or sensitive to certain foods. So you can get broad range of food sensitivity panel testing. I personally do not do those things because of cost prohibitiveness, but certainly integrated GP colleagues who work with me do help in looking into those aspects. And then people tend to avoid those foods temporarily. That doesn't mean some of them are good food, but they are not tolerating them. Like for example, yep. amines. Okay? So uh, they, are, they are not bad foods. But if you start improving their phase two metabolism, like glucuronidation, methylation, glycination, sulfonation pathways improved, and then mm-hmm. you see where the challenge are, then you can specifically target intervention and gradually you can start tolerating some of these foods which you are intolerant to. But some individuals may be uh, having <clears throat> like gluten intolerance or celiac. That's, these are the ones who have to be very careful, particularly when it okay. comes down to ASD spectrum. So you mentioned, yeah, you obviously do your interview and, and checklists and things like that. You don't do the food intolerance testing, but if you're suspecting ADHD, are there particular assessments that you're looking at that that you may kind of do from an integrative point of view? Okay, good question. So I usually do a broad range of metabolic screen in any individual. Mm-hmm. Okay. And majority, there are two sets, like some of them are covered by Medicare, which means that it could, cost, it could be cost neutral. So certainly uh, looking into their liver functions will tell us that how liver is performing. So that also tells us about the status of their proteins. Then pH balance can be tested through the anion gap. Okay, and again through the uh, that could be done. Now iron studies will give us the status of their iron load. Thyroid functioning will tell us that how T3 T4 balances are. Vitamin D again very important. Again covered by Medicare will be a big immune modulator. It's a hormone. It's not a vitamin. Okay, it's a corticosteroid. So it has a broad range of role. And then. You can check for certainly certain parameters like B12, folate, okay, and zinc. So some of these mm-hmm. testings, when you broadly do it, you get some kind of an idea that, yes, where this individual stands. So my approach is always to be conservative side because if you spend a lot of money on investigations, then treatment may not be possible. Sometimes people get overwhelmed. But the main role comes up is that once that these testings are done, the whole session is dedicated in educating them. So I give evidence about how the neurotransmitters are manufactured. So that, as I mentioned to you earlier, I share that slide with them. Then I tell them that how neurons work, how what kind of diets would be helpful. So like, for example, like low-carbohydrate, sort of a keto principles diet would be helpful. Healthy fats, including like uh, medium-chain triglycerides are also helpful. And then we can look for some uh, supplementation along with that. Now, in some individuals, those who are not responding or sometimes they have a poor associated gut health, okay, 
then these are the ones where you have to look for more advanced panels okay where mm-hmm. you are looking for their methylation profiling including their genetic studies because if they have certain snips like mthfr mao compt gad these are the or gst these are the individuals who will have vulnerability in detoxification and may have a potential side effects and once you have created the environment in which these genes operate then chances are that even the spare tire will optimally perform maybe not at that speed what you want but at least a decent one where you are not reacting to those foods okay so mm-hmm. if in this perspective uh, individual is supported with their diet first plus then some supplements nutrients plus then adding a supplement medication i have seen good response okay so, all right so it's diet dietary changes medications and then some supplements so the supplements are they obviously you're giving vitamin d vitamin d is low when is that is that what you're doing yes, that's correct. based that's correct. using so the what, blood what work I tend to... to do is that again you know the range of the nutrients are important so so as you could mm-hmm. see that the range is very broad in certain nutrients let's say classically give an example of vitamin d so in australian labs we measure them in nanomoles per liter and the range given is 50 to 150 that is a mean 49 is inadequate and 50 is okay so our target is particularly in brain health is that we are around 70th to 80th percentile of the top range so if you are targeting vitamin d somewhere around 125 nanomoles which is equivalent to 50 nanograms when there is a conversion factor is there that's where you will see optimal performance of the brain neurotransmitter and usually at that level it creates an environment where there is an uptake of serotonin there and in conjunction with good quality fish oil like particularly DHA component will help so it's like a synergistic effect which you will see once we suffice the need for some of these nutrients okay and you mentioned it's a more of a DHEA when you use an omega 3 a higher DHEA yes. version yes. is that what you yes. use yeah yeah yes. okay is there a dosage that you would use for omega 3s Yeah omega 3 is there so you can use omega 3 index can be a like some clinicians wants to do it you can do omega 3 index it's about 120 mm-hmm. to do it uh, and particularly yeah. more so for those who are like autoimmune so you want to make sure that you want to maintain the high best levels of their uh, omega 3s because omega 3 omega 6 ratio is very important especially when it is in what is going to be inflammatory or prone but these uh, DHA will not only have a D series of resolvents but also they have protectants and the protectants are particularly required for neurons so okay. you want to downregulate that inflammation and also helps to improve the outer layer of mitochondria and health of that phospholipid layer that's why we want healthy dha levels and how much do you generally give from a dose so, point of view yeah so my target is around 2.5 to 3 grams of epa dha okay. combination yep. and then see how they are going now usually if it is taken in a concentrated oil form then usually you require about 5 mls to 10 mls but if sometimes taste is a issue then capsules is the only choice so between 2.5 to 3 grams is a reasonable dose and then where you can start seeing the response in few months but i am aware of that if people have autoimmune and cardiac things then you can even go up higher 5 to 6 grams so if let's say a naturopath sees someone who's on stimulant medication and and that 
client of theirs or that patient of theirs is seeing a you know, mainstream psychiatrist, are they able to prescribe these nutrients? Are they safe to, to prescribe in conjunction with stimulant yeah. medication? Good question. And I think most of the naturopaths have got their interaction software. So yep. one thing which they can always look for is that I would recommend that if you are prescribing certain supplements, then you should look for any potential interactions. For example, mm-hmm. somebody's on warfarin or blood thinners, you have to be careful that their INR or doesn't uh, derange it. So, mm-hmm. And the reason is not that fish oil is bad, but the main thing is that the dose of the anticoagulants has to be adjusted. You know, So that is to be important. If you are giving some, for example, garlic, that also affects the coagulation. Okay. Now, other things comes up is certain herbal nutraceuticals, you know, so like, mm-hmm. for example, St. John's of Wart. Okay. Now, St. John's of Wart is a Mao inhibitor. So what it means is that if you are going to give someone St. John's of Wart and they are on a stimulant, let's say, for example, then it's a very not a good cocktail, you know, because yep. you are blocking the breakdown of that neurotransmitter, then you can have the serotonergic symptoms are there. Yep. And if they have got a genetic vulnerability, okay, on the top of it, so they have a mouse snip or a comp snip where they cannot break it down. It is very vital that when the supplements are given, first, they should be aware of their potential uh, interaction, number one, which, and there are methods available. I think if I'm not wrong, there is a platform where the, you can actually check uh, potential interactions. And again, when you are giving it, always start low and slow. Do not be aggressive okay, in anything because you never know. Now, a barrier could come up is when the psychiatrist on the other end may or may not like it because mm-hmm. that's something is not part of their training. This is where I think collaborative approach will be helpful rather than taking a defensive view of uh, naturopaths over stimulants. And I would say on the other end to the psychiatrist is where how you can resolve it is by sharing literature. So I think one of the researchers from our part of the world is Professor Julia Rucklich. Okay, I'm sure mm-hmm. it's a well-known name. She has done a lifetime work in this area and has done a lot of work in the area of ADHD. Uh, Felice Jaka, as you know, from yep. uh, Melbourne, has also done a lot of work in this area. So there are very eminent researchers in these areas, and they have published their work in mainstream journals, including psychiatry journals. And if start creating library of some of the papers, and in case there's any doubt, you share those research papers with them. Because, you know, mm-hmm. rather than a defensive view, you should have a collaborative view. And there is a book which I would recommend to all of my listeners. And it is written by Dr. James Greenblatt, who is a child psychiatrist who has been practicing integrated approaches in mental health, particularly ADHD and ASD. And he's written this mm-hmm. book, Finally focused. Finally focused. If you do a okay. search, it will it will come up, and it is a well well written. First written by a psychiatrist, which means that author is a practicing mental health clinician and who has been working, and he has given a lot of strategies of nutrients approaches which can be used in conjunction. Some of it I've already highlighted in my our discussion. Yep. 
Okay. All right. Sounds like a great resource. We'll, we'll certainly put that uh, link to that in the show notes uh, for people to refer sure. to. So, sure. Sure. I mean, obviously we are briefly talking about ADHD and it sounds like, you know, you've got lots of wisdom and, and information that you can definitely give us to help us uh, really understand how to firstly assess for and then treat ADHD. Um, and I touched on along some of those, but uh, it sounds like certainly assessment sounds like it's really important from your perspective, not just asking about symptoms, but also doing some good blood work. And a lot of the yeah. blood work that you mentioned previously, that were Medicare rebatable, so, which is great. Yeah. And then you start off there and then treat accordingly. Basically, if there's low vitamin D, you treat accordingly. If there's low iron... Yeah. And an interesting thing that you mentioned was, I'll just recap on it. You said if there's low iron, you can pretty much assume there's low zinc. And, and what was the other? And magnesium. magnesium. Wow. So yeah. you're automatically low iron, then that's it. You automatically assume that zinc and magnesium is low. Until proven otherwise, wow. we are low. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. So then you do that and then you obviously you treat either through uh, dietary changes, there's supplementation, um, that's more targeted, looking at increasing detoxification, improving liver detoxification, um, also helping with neurotransmitter production. And then if you're still not getting full full remission in symptoms or great improvement in symptoms, then you might look at doing other assessments and you mentioned the guts and doing certain yes. genetic testing. Um, yes. You do a lot of organic acid testing too, don't you? That's correct. That's correct. So organic acid testing gives us a snapshot of biochemical availability of that nutrient which we are prescribing. So mm -hmm. consumption doesn't mean absorption because uh, an absorption depends on several cofactors and the mechanism. So, so that's where the organic acid testing can be a benchmark for a lot of these individuals, particularly when we are dealing with complex cases like ASD, autism, like spectrums and also mental health where ADHD can mm -hmm. be an associated part. You know, so, yep. uh, and Often I get, when I go do those results, patient has to be educated. It is not that doing a testing and taking a supplement until unless they do not change their lifestyle, it's not going to work. Yeah. The other thing I suppose from my clinical experience is sometimes uh, there's certain herbs that can be beneficial um, and some of those that I've had some positive effects, uh, things like bacopa, ginkgo seems to be some, some beneficial with some people and, and even phosphatidylserine, there's some nice research um, showing that that may be beneficial too. So, so we've got a whole range of different options that we can uh, choose from. It's not just giving them stimulant medication then, is, is that right? Yes. And I think you have, like your work has been on turmeric and saffron, so you know very well <laughs> that's how it has. So I remember one of the seminars, uh, Professor Caribon saying about saffron, it is a Mother Nature's ketamine, you know. So <laughs> it's a calming, <laughs> and it's a calming formula. You know, it's a GABA enhancing, yeah. it's a neuromodulator, again, a neuromodulator. Absolutely. So certainly yeah. we should be looking into some of these Mother Nature's nutrients given, like turmeric, okay? Yeah. It has more than Absolutely. 100 actions, you know. So you can see that, like, once you incorporate some of these things in the part of their diet, and another thing which I often collaborate is that, like, if depending on the individuals who are listening, but let's say you can form up a team of nutritionists, dietitian, chef, okay, yeah. who can be where person can go and learn how to cook mm -hmm. a dish. No, a lot of them don't yeah. know how to do it. And 
at least in my practice, I've actually created certain recipes to cook how to do it. So I share yeah. with them that this are this is how you do it. So and do not hesitate in involving other clinicians who may be expertise in their area. And then it becomes like a collaborative effort. And I'm sure patients will be beneficially at the end of it. That's great. Great advice. All right. Well, thanks, Sanjeev. Thank you very much for uh, joining us today um, to Thank help you. us provide some um, great information about ADHD and just your your integrative approach in general, not just that can be applied with ADHD, but any mental health condition. I know that you're doing some great work and, and great education. You're educating a lot of uh, practitioners about this integrative approach and I, you know, I thank you very much. I think you're doing some great work, so keep it up. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So thank you everyone for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Adrian Lopresti and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.